how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hey, strangers! Welcome to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Thank you for choosing for choosing. Thank you for choosing to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. There are many podcasts out there, but you're. You chose to listen to Strange Talk Podcast, so thank you. Well, today's episode is all about Hollywood murders, mainly, obviously, celebrities that were murdered. Um, some of these you probably know, some of them you may have never known of or just knew a little bit of info about them, but hopefully you enjoy them nonetheless. And I apologize because I have allergies, and uh, it's allergy season for me, so if you have allergies yourself, then you know the plight that I suffer. <laughs> But yeah, it sucks. So I'll be constantly clearing my throat. I'm going to try to, um, you know, clear them up in post when I edit the fucking episode. So hopefully it doesn't get too annoying. But sometimes I tend to forget when I clear my throat at certain points because sometimes I record for so long that I don't remember exactly where. And I tend to skip over after I listen to a few minutes of it or about like a couple, like 10 minutes of audio. And I don't happen to catch where I cleared my throat. Like right now, I'll probably remember this one because it's so early in the beginning. But yeah, it sucks having allergies. So if you are one that suffers from seasonal allergies, then you'll know what I'm going through. But yes, um, it's not like it's super bad. But anyways, um, so I noticed on the Instagram, I totally fucked up because when you choose to do multiple photos and they're not crop right or one of the photos is bigger than the original photo that you're cropping, they won't place right when you're actually posting it so that's why Subin, susan 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 cabot's face was partially fucking covered because the first picture that i posted it was cropped and it's all the other pictures after you choose for the multiples fucking thing option there it just crops it to the way that picture the original first picture you chose is going to be cropped so that's why her face is not but i will be posting a picture when i release this episode on instagram at strange talk podcast so you can actually see what susan cabot actually looks like and also uh you got a good chunk of uh bob crane's face so if you don't know who bob crane is uh bob crane was a star his most notable fucking role was uh hogan's heroes so if you never heard of that show i don't blame you for not knowing who he is it was came out in the 60s but it was You'll find out the information when I get to his case. But having said that, let's start with the first case. And the first case that I'm going to be discussing is of Susan Cabot. And Susan Cabot was a famous actress during the 1940s and 50s. Um, she had a short-lived career. Well, not really. She was actually, she was okay. But mainly, um, it, it died down fairly quickly compared to other celebrities. Now, let's get on to it. And this, I'm going to be naming The Killing of the Wasp. That is actually a movie she starred in as well. It was on the night of December 10th, 1986, when emergency services received a phone call. The voice on the phone, who identified himself as the son of famous actress Susan Cabot, breathlessly reported that a burglar had entered his mother's Encino, California home. 
Within minutes, a team of paramedics arrived at the hilltop home that the 49-year-old actress shared with her 23-year-old son, Timothy Scott Roman. While her film career had ended years prior, Cabot's colorful life, including several marriages and a one-time romantic relationship with Jordan King's Hussein, allowed her to own a magnificent house in one of Encino's most expensive neighborhoods, complete with a magnificent view of greater Los Angeles. Though somewhat dilapidated compared to the other expensive homes nearby, she and her son managed to live there quietly enough with only the occasional media interview to disturb their privacy. Upon entering the house, the paramedics found a scene of utter chaos. Not only did the once palatial home appear to have been ransacked, but it looked like a hoarder's paradise with trash bags, newspapers, and rotting food scattered everywhere. Furniture had been overturned and contents of drawers had been haphazardly spilled everywhere they looked. To top it off, Timothy Roman's four pet dogs were frantically barking, and to protect the paramedics from being attacked, needed to be retrieved by Timothy into a smaller room despite his purported concern for his mother, not to mention his own claim to have been attacked by the intruder, Timothy seemed strangely calm as he led the paramedics to his mother's upstairs bedroom. But even the experienced paramedics weren't prepared for the sight that waited for them there. Susan Cabot's dead body, dressed only in a nightgown, was lying on the bed and it was evident enough that she had been bludgeoned to death. Bloodstains could be found on all the walls in the room and her face was virtually unrecognizable. Oddly enough, the killer had apparently covered her with a blanket before beating her to death. Though the fragments of her shattered skull, along with brain matter smeared on the bed, provided ample evidence of the violence in which she had been assaulted. Police were quickly called, and while they searched the entire house, no trace of forced entry was found anywhere. As for Timothy, he claimed that he had been awakened at 9.30 in the evening after hearing the attack in his mother's bedroom. <laughs> On searching the house, he found the burglar whom he described as a tall Latino man wearing ninja robes. Despite his supposed martial arts prowess, Roman had been quickly overcome by the burglar who managed to knock him unconscious. See, Timothy, um, he studied martial arts and he believed him. He idolized Bruce Lee. Those were that was one of his heroes. So, it it is kind of surprising that as someone who's studying martial arts, he would be overcome. But I, who knows? You'll find out why. He also insisted that the burglar had stolen seventy thousand dollars in cash, which had been concealed in the home. Almost from the beginning, police had difficulty believing his story. Not only did Timothy's story tend to change details with each retelling but the paramedics who examined him found no trace of any real injuries aside from some superficial lacerations. They certainly didn't find any evidence of a head injury severe enough to leave him unconscious. It likely didn't help that his physical appearance was distinctly odd, a legacy of the experimental hormone treatment he had undergone as a child to correct his physical dwarfism. See, Timothy suffered from dwarfism. He was a little person, and he would undergo hormonal treatment to try to correct this issue. Despite being 22 years old, he still resembled a teenager in many ways, albeit with a strangely wizened face. It was likely his self-consciousness concerning his height and appearance that led him to become a martial arts enthusiast, 
complete with weightlifting equipment scattered throughout the house and a framed picture of Bruce Lee in his bedroom, upon which he idolized. Timothy was brought down to the West Valley Police Station, where he was grilled for hours. Along with questions about the murder, police also tried to learn about the relationship he had with his mother, which Timothy described as being very close. Finally, after hours of questioning, Timothy Scott Roman was formally charged with his mother's murder. Taking the news of his arrest in stride, he asked to be taken back to the house to collect his medication and personal effects. While there, he then led police to the room where the dogs had been kept, but they had finally been removed by animal control. And there, hidden in a laundry hamper, was the murder weapon. One of the many barbells he used for weightlifting, still covered in his mother's blood as well as fingerprints. Though he still denied killing his mother at first, he insisted he, he had only hidden the barbell because he didn't think anyone would believe his story. And, of course, he was right. Even as the forensic evidence against him was steadily piling up, media stories about Susan Cabot and her son were carried across the country. Most of them centered on the actress herself, including her film career during the 1950s that allowed her to star against luminaires such as Humphrey Bogart and Lee Marvin. After her film career in Hollywood, she managed to get a few Broadway parts before growing too old for the usual temptress roles that had made her very famous. By the end of the 1950s, she was relegated to appearing in Roger Corman movies, culminating in her final starring role in the 1959 horror film, The Wasp Woman. She quit acting soon afterward. As for her son, Timothy, he was even more of a mystery. Aside from being Susan Cabot's only child, little was really known about him aside from the medical treatment he had received as a child. Even the identity of his father was never really confirmed by Cabot. Virtually every man she had ever been with was named as a possible father at some point, including King Hussein. According to some of the very rare visitors to their home on Charmin Lane, Timothy and Susan had a strange relationship with frequent arguments and a shared hoarder mentality that caused them to accumulate a breathtaking amount of junk in their otherwise expensive home. After learning about the acrimonious relationship that Cabot and her son had, police wasted no time in breaking down his claims of innocent and finally getting him to confess to his mother's murder. But their problems hardly ended there. By the time his, his case came to trial in May of 1989, his defense attorney, Chester Leo Smith, had changed his plea to guilty by reason of insanity. In making this claim, Smith insisted that Timothy's mental derangement had been caused by the hormonal treatment he had received as a child. Timothy's hormonal treatments had begun in 1958 while he was part of an experimental program run by the National Institute of Health. As one of the 700 children being treated for dwarfism, Timothy was injected with pituitary gland extract extracted from thousands of human cadavers. Over the eight years in which he received the treatments, Timothy showed no medical problems, though he only attended a modest height increase and an oddly wizened appearance. Fortunately, many of the other participants in the study wouldn't be quite so lucky. Well, such... Kreutzfeld Jacob disease, or CJD, I'm pretty sure I said that wrong, but Kreutz, Kreutzfeld Jacob disease, or CJD, was relatively unknown at the time. A disproportionately high number of cases would be diagnosed in the years that followed the end of the study. 
more commonly known as mad cow disease these days, CJD is a rare and incurable disease often identified by mental deterioration, behavioral changes, and eventually fatal dementia. While there was no evidence that Timothy had developed CJD, the lack of an accepted diagnosed test, not to mention reports of bizarre behavior in other test subjects, was enough for his lawyer. As part of Timothy's instantly plea, Smith stressed that the incubation period for CJD could be more than 20 years in many cases, and that he could well have developed symptoms without anyone realizing it. Referring to his client as a human experiment gone wrong, Smith went to extreme lengths to paint him as nothing more than a victim of his mother's attempt to make her son look normal. Which went well with his attempt to prove diminished responsibility by portraying Susan Cabot as a disturbed Hollywood has-been, incapable of accepting that she had lost her looks. It was also revealed that Cabot had helped herself to Timothy's medication in the mistaken belief that it would help her keep her youthful appearance, not unlike the character she played in her final movie, The Wasp Woman. By representing the dead woman as a bizarre shut-in who had managed to drive her son insane, Smith hoped to bolster his defense and win a shortened sentence for their clients. And the reporters covering the trial ate every fucking thing up. Even Cabot's past relationship with King Hussein came under scrutiny, though Timothy's real father was still a mystery. Smith presented evidence that Susan Cabot received a regular sum of 1500 a month from the keeper of the king's purse, Anmin, Jordan. There it is written indication in the handwriting of Susan Roman that his money is from a trust. For better or worse, it looks like child support, he added. The Jordanian government wisely stayed out of the whole matter. What was being conveniently overlooked was that many of the people who actually knew Cabot were scandalized by how she was being portrayed. Still, it was hardly a secret that Susan Cabot had been under a psychologist's care during the final months of her life and that she suffered from severe depression. Despite her frequent quarrels with her son, she also described him as her only reason for living. It was also no secret that she had been slowly deteriorating in her final months, and the images showing bizarre state of her house were used to demonstrate just how ill she had become. For whatever reason, Timothy became confident enough about the case his lawyers had built up to change his plea to not guilty. Shortly afterward, he took the stand for the first time in his own trial and insisted that it was his mother who had attacked him with a barbell, forcing him to beat her to death in self-defense. Though this di directly contradicted the confession he had already made, his testimony was allowed to stand. On October 10, 1989, Timothy was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, and having already served two and a half years in jail awaiting trial, he received only three years probation. In handing down her decision, Judge Darlene Schmepp stressed her belief that Timothy loved his mother very much, and that there was no malice or premeditation in his actions. He largely vanished into obscurity afterward, though, but some sources hint that he later developed a brain disease, possibly CJD or, as we know it today, mad cow disease, which led to his death in 2003. While his mother had been buried in Hillside Memorial Park Cemetery in Culver City, Timothy's ashes were reportedly scattered at sea. As for the fatal house where the murder had taken place, it has long been since demolished and a new, more lavish house stands on the spot. 
All physical evidence of the long-ago murder and what really happened has been obliterated. But a bizarre postscript emerged in 2018. When disclassified, documents were published showing that the Central Intelligence Agency had deliberately set then-Prince Hussein up with Susan Cabot to ensure Jordan's continuing cooperation with United States interests. If Timothy really was Hussein's son, it remained a secret on all sides. Hussein died in 1999, and his official biography makes no mention of either Susan Cabot or the son they supposedly had together. And that's the end of the first case, the Wasp Woman. Um, so I just thought it was, I thought it's a really interesting story because of the fact that it's, it's, it's in this day and age, especially now, I just repeated myself, but you know, especially today, celebrities are always in the public's eyes, even more now because of what with Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, they're, you, you're always constantly seeing a celebrity. And it's really hard for them to keep their children's lives private. And obviously, it's a lot easier back then because, you know, social media wasn't around like it is today. But she was able to keep her son a secret. And then not only that, to top it off, that the CIA wanted to set up Jordan Hussein to be with this famous actress just so he can cooperate with the United States is just fucking crazy to me. Um, I have to look more into that, um, you know, so I found that out after doing all my research of it. But Susan Cabot was actually very attractive. She was very pretty um, for her time. Um, and it's sad because, you, you, like, I, going back to what I was saying about be, being a celebrity and just being in the public's eye, you don't really know what goes on in their private lives. And it's crazy because she was a hoarder. And obviously, the hoarding element aspect probably came in after her career you know tanked and she was no longer in movies she was no longer the hot temptress woman in the roles that she that made her famous so i imagine that's when it severely got worse but it's interesting nonetheless to see something just to know not just to know but just to see the inside of a private life and you never truly know what goes on in somebody even in everybody's in everyday life you know so let's move on to the next case so the next case that we're going to be discussing, well, that I'm going to be discussing, is of an actor that everyone should know. If you don't know, then I'm surprised. But again, for the younger audience out there, you probably won't know who this man is. But having said that, this one is of Phil Hartman. And I was a fan of Phil Hartman. Well, mainly his characters on SNL and his, um, if you've never seen the movie, Go watch it because it's when it was in his prime time, not Phil Hartman, but Sinbad. Uh, if you've never seen the movie House Guest, go watch that movie. That movie's fucking like, I don't know what it is about that movie. It's like stupid, but I still fucking enjoy it. I still watch it from time to time. Like if it's ever on or something, I'm like flipping through channels and I happen to see it, then, you know, yeah. So let's get to the life of Phil Hartman. He was born Philip Edward Hartman on September 24, 1948 in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. He was the fourth of his parents' eight children, and he was raised in the Roman Catholic faith. After moving to the U.S. with his family in 1958, he had his high school education at Westchester High School in Los Angeles. 
For college, he attended California State University, Northridge, where he studied graphic arts. After graduation, Hartman built his own graphic arts business, creating and designing album covers, advertising logos, and other such things for several music bands. While at it, he enrolled for comedy classes run by the Groundlings in Los Angeles. After years of training, he joined the cast of the Groundlings and eventually became one of the main stars of the show. In 1977, Hartman collaborated with fellow comedian Paul Rubin in creating the character Pee Wee Herman and the Pee Wee Herman Show, a stage show based on the aforementioned character. Hartman portrayed the character Captain Carl on the show, which eventually snowballed into a movie known as Pee Wee's Big Adventure that came out back in 1985, and a TV program, Pee Wee's Playhouse, that ran from 1986 to 1987, both of which he was also featured in. Hartman eventually deserted the Pee Wee Herman project after falling out with Paul Rubin on some creative differences. Afterward, he recorded several film roles as well as voiceover roles all through the 1980s and 1990s. He particularly gained repute for providing voiceovers for advertisement. Phil Hartman scored the most notable role of his showbiz career when he joined the cast and writing crew of NBC's long-running variety show Saturday Night Live. His stint on Saturday Night Live spanned eight years during which he performed as many as 70 different characters. He became particularly known for his hilarious epic Bill Clinton impressions and comedy sketches. Hartman's starring and writing roles on SNL earned him three Primetime Emmy Award nominations, winning the award for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Music or Comedy Program in 1989 alongside his other co-workers. While working on Saturday Night Live, Hartman also held several other acting roles, most notable of which was on the hit animated sitcom The Simpsons. And if you don't know who he was, he was always that guy that goes, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always liked Phil Hartman in that thing. And the other reason why I enjoyed Phil Hartman mainly was because of SNL. But I thought he was really funny in, um, what's it called? Uh, House Guest with uh, Sinbad. So go check that movie out again. He voiced different characters and appeared in a total of 52 episodes. Hartman left SNL in 1994, and consequently, he relocated from New York City to Southern California. In 1995, he joined the cast of NBC sitcom News Radio, starring as a radio news anchor named Bill McNeil. He was on the show for four seasons, as he had passed on before its fifth and final season. Phil Hartman was married three times during his lifetime. For obvious reasons, the most significant of his marital unions was with Bryn Omadal, a former model and aspiring actress. The duo met on a blind date, and after dating for one year, they tied the knot on December on sorry November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty seven. They had two children together: Sean Edward, born in nineteen eighty seven, and Bergen Hartman, born in nineteen ninety two. That could be Bergen. It's B R. B-I-R-G-E-N, Hartman. <laughs> Unlike her famous husband, Bryn was unable to make a headway in her own showbiz career. She was allegedly intimidated by her husband's profound success, and at some point, Hartman considered quitting his own career just to salvage the marriage. Bryn's plight was further complicated by the fact that she progressively slid into alcohol and drug dependency, which made it even more difficult for her to get acting roles. Hartman and his wife never got a divorce, however. 
The marriage ended after 11 years following the tragic death of both parties. After their death, the two Hartman children were eventually raised in Eclair, Wisconsin, by their mother's sister, Catherine Omadal, and her husband, Michael Wright. Phil Hartman's life came to an end on May 28, 1998, in Encino, California. While sleeping in his bedroom on that faithful day, he was shot three times by his wife, Bryn, who was intoxicated at the time. After committing the heinous act, she drove to a friend's place, to whom she confessed the crime. Together they went back to the apartment, where the friend eventually dialed 911. Bryn Hartman also called another friend on the phone, to whom she also confessed the crime to. Before police arrived at the scene, she locked herself in the bedroom, and there is where she took her own life by shooting herself in the right eye. Phil Hartman's death was ruled a homicide. His remains were cremated and his ashes were scattered on Emerald Bay in Santa Catalina Island of Los Angeles. And it was according to his will. Those were his wishes. And that's a short one because there's not really a lot of information that I could find too much on the actual um, the event took place. Most of the information I found was what I had already read to you. But uh, just I remember when it happened. Uh, I was a kid, but I was like pretty young, but I remember when it happened, it was on the news and everything. Because my mom, which is weird, because my mom growing up, uh, she would always watch news in the morning when we woke up and she's getting us ready for school. And she'd always watch it at night before she would go to bed. That'd be like the last thing she would watch before she'd go to bed while I was watching like Simpsons or something. And I remember when um, they announced uh, how he had passed away. He was shot by his wife. And everything, and I, I remember that. I mean, it, back then, it what didn't really strike me. I was just like, "Oh shit, that's crazy." Obviously, I didn't say that because I was a kid back then. But it, I just, it was something that you know, it's just like, "Whoa," you know, something like that happened, and it sucks because he, you know, he was just living, and then all of a sudden, somebody he cares about just fucking ends up killing him, and it's sad. It sucks. You, you know, and. We don't really know, per se, their personal life, you know, obviously because he died in the tragic way that he did, you know, he could have been safe, trying to save his marriage, he could have been a really nice guy, and he probably was, but we don't know, but regardless, he was taken too soon, and it sucks. So, this next case that I'm going to be discussing is of the one notorious, the most notorious one on our list. It's of Bob Crane. Bob Crane was a beloved television actor whose real life had a seedy side and whose death baffled his friends, fans, and the police. He played the title role of Colonel Hogan in the 60s sitcom Hogan's Heroes. He was one of the stars of the show from 1965 until 1971, when the series was canceled. During that time, he left his wife of more than 20 years for his co-star Sigrid Valdez. He also created a taste for promiscuous sex and filming it, and he is considered to have been a serious sex addict. After the show, he never found the same success he had with Hogan's Heroes. He instead took up small roles, took to the stage, and continued making home pornography. He was on a tour with a play when he was murdered in Scottsdale, Arizona. But till this day, the Bob Crane's murder, Bob Crane's murder has never been solved. I said the Bob's Crane. <laughs> Before becoming a television star, Bob Crane was a popular radio DJ in L.A. 
He worked with ultra-famous people like Marilyn Monroe before he himself became famous. Because of this, he was a woman magnet. He was never without a woman willing to sleep with him or have group sex with him and his friends. Whether they were all willing to be videotaped is not clear, though. Many of them later said that they had no idea he was filming or taking photographs, and it was his ability to pick up women and his love of documenting it, documenting it that led to his friendship with John Henry Carpenter. <laughs> How do you not know he's filming it? I mean, unless he's actually like hiding the camera, because I imagine when he's filming it, he's like, like fucking thrusting and shit with the fucking camera on his fucking. Because the cameras weren't fucking small back then, you know, those fucking eight millimeter cameras. They weren't small. They were kind of big. So how do you not know? (laughs) Anyways, John Henry Carpenter was an electronics whiz with the same sexual appetite as Bob Crane. Together, they would pick up women and take them back to hotels, their homes, and other people's homes, where they would engage in sexual acts and all while documenting it. There's no evidence that they were homosexual, but there were rumors that John wanted more from Bob than he was willing to give. Rumor has it that Bob told John he did not want to continue the friendship a few days or the day before his murder. Carpenter has always denied this claim. On June 28, 1978, Bob Crane was killed in the early hours of the morning. Someone came into his room at the Winfield Place Apartments in Scottsdale, Arizona, and beat him to death while he slept. He was hit in the head with a blunt object at least once, most likely twice. He never even had a chance to leave the bed. The killer also wrapped an electrical cord around his neck and tied it there. Some believe this was a message regarding Bob's love of videotaping sex. Another interesting find was a bottle of scotch in the room, and according to those who knew Bob, he did not drink scotch. There was no sign of a struggle and no sign of forced entry. So if you uh, follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, you will actually be able to see the graphic picture of the crime scene photo that was taken of Bob Crane's body. Um, it's somewhat graphic, yes, there is a lot of blood because these types of killings will, you know, that will you'll that's what you're gonna fucking see. <laughs> but um, if you're not one that if you're squeamish or if you don't like the sight of blood or you don't like graphic imagery, I suggest you don't go and look at the photo. But if you're okay with that and you feel comfortable, by all means, go and follow me at Strange Talk Podcast. Or if you don't want to, go ahead and search Bob Crane's um, crime scene photo and you'll be able to see the gruesome photo for yourself. Given the clues at the scene, police believe that Bob knew his killer. It is possible that he let the killer in or that he left the door open for the killer. He may have even fallen asleep with the killer in the room. At the time, Bob Crane was divorcing his wife, Sigrid. He also may have had countless enemies in the form of jilted lovers, jealous husbands, boyfriends, and angry women who did not know they were videotaped by the star. The list of suspects could have been very long. However, there was no evidence that one of his lovers had anything to do with it. His wife also had an alibi. Sure, she could have hired someone, but someone he knew, maybe? You never know. This left police with John Henry Carpenter. He and Bob Crane were excritably linked in the sordid tale. John got a stream of lovers through his friendship with Crane. He had a lifestyle to lose if Crane was to sever their friendship. 
The problem with that is there is no evidence they had a falling out, or very little evidence. Police found it suspicious that John called the apartment while they were there several times and never asked why the police were in his friend's apartment. That could be explained by John not wanting to implicate himself if he had something to do with their pornography. Much more difficult to explain is blood found in John's rental car that matched Bob's blood type. The problem with that is there was no way to test the DNA at the time that this murder took place. Over the years, John Carpenter was a main suspect in the case, but there was never enough to arrest him. Prosecutors decided to go with the picture of what could have been brain matter in Carpenter's rental car in 1994. The picture did not hold up in court and he was acquitted of all charges. To this day, he is the go-to in this whodunit case. There is no single other person who draws as much suspicion in this case, but it could be that the possible list is simply too long and varied to pick one out of the myriad of people with motive. The question remains, just who killed Bob Crane? To this day, it has never been solved. One thing that um, during the research that I found that was mentioned was that uh, after when the police came to find his body, well, you know, when they came to investigate the crime scene and everything, they found, I want to say it was like three or four boxes filled with pornography, not pornography that was purchased, but pornography just made by Bob Crane and friends. So, um, and and there was, um, I believe there was a projector and a camera. No, not a camera, a projector. And it was a bunch of film reels of stuff that he wanted, that he was doing to women. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like hardcore stuff. Like obviously they were having hardcore sex, but it wasn't like hardcore, like torturing. He, it was more like BDSM type of um, sexual acts. So he was a very um, promiscuous man. So this last and final case for this episode of Hollywood Murders is of Rebecca Schaefer. So Rebecca Lucille Schaefer was born to a Jewish family in Eugene, Oregon, the only child of Dana Nee Wilner, or a writer and instructor at Portland Community College, and Dr. Benson Schaefer, a child psychologist. She was raised in the Jewish region, religion in Portland, where she attended Lincoln High School. She initially had aspirations to become a rabbi, but began modeling during her junior year in high school. Schaefer appeared in department store catalogs and also appeared in television commercials as an extra and as an extra in a television film. In August of 1984, Schaefer's parents allowed her to move to New York City by herself to pursue a modeling career. While working in New York, she attended professional children's school. She also had a short-term role on the daytime soap opera, Guiding Light. In late 1984, Schaefer landed the role of Annie Barnes on ABC's One Life to Live for a stint that lasted only six months. During this time, she attempted to further her modeling prospects. Standing at 5 feet 7 inches, she was considered too short for high fashion modeling and struggled to find work. In 1985, Schaefer moved to Japan in hopes of finding more modeling jobs, but still encountered difficulty due to her height. She returned to New York City and decided to focus on an acting career. In 1986, Schaefer won a small role in Woody Allen's comedy Radio Days, but her performance was ultimately edited from the film. Only a brief scene featuring her character remains in the film. She continued modeling and also worked as a waitress. 
After landing the cover of Seventeen magazine, she caught the attention of television producers who were casting for a new sitcom called My Sister Sam, starring Pam Dauber. Schaefer tested for and won the role of Patricia Patty Russell, a teenager who moves from Oregon to San Francisco to live with her 29-year-old sister, Samantha Sam Russell, after the death of their parents. The series was initially a hit, ranking in the top 25, but was unfortunately canceled halfway through its second season in April of 1988, the year I was born, due to failing ratings. Oh my god, what if because I was born, I was the cause for it to to be canceled. <laughs> After my sister Sam, Schaefer had supporting roles and scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, The End of Innocence, and the television film Out of Time. She also served as a spokesperson for the children's charity Tuesday's Child. On July 18th, 1989, one year after I was born, because I'm a narcissist and everything's got to be about me, <laughs> Schaefer was fatally shot at her West Hollywood residence by a man named Robert John Bardo, a fan who had been stalking her for almost three years. Bardo had become obsessed with Schaefer after the previous subject of his preoccupation, child peace activist Samantha Smith, died in a plane crash in 1985. John Bardo was actually obsessed with this peace activist, Samantha Smith. Bardo wrote numerous letters to Schaefer, one of which was actually answered by her. In 1987, Bardo traveled to Los Angeles hoping to meet with Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam, but was turned away by Warner Brothers security. Angry, he returned a month later armed with the knife, but again, security guards prevented him from gaining unauthorized access to the actress. Bardo returned to his native Tucson and lost focus on Schaefer for a while, as his obsession shifted toward pop singers Debbie Gibson, Madonna, and Tiffany. In 1989, after watching Schaefer in the black comedy Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, in which she appeared in bed with a male actor, Bardo, out of apparent jealousy, became enraged by the scene and decided that Schaefer should be punished for becoming, in his words, another Hollywood whore. After learning that Arthur Richard Jackson, a man who stalked and stabbed actress Teresa Saldana, also in West Hollywood, in 1982, had used a private investigator to obtain Saldana's address. Bardo approached a detective agency in Tucson and paid them $250 to find Schaefer's home address in California Department of Motor Vehicles, or the DMV records. Bardo's brother helped him get a Ruger GP100.357 caliber handgun because he himself was underage. Bardo was only 19 years old at the time of this heinous act that he committed. Bardo traveled to Los Angeles a third time and, after locating Schaefer's apartment, roamed the neighborhood asking passerbys if Schaefer actually indeed lived there. Certain that the address was correct, he approached the porch and rang the doorbell. Schaefer, who was preparing for an audition for a role in The Godfather Part 3 and expecting a script to be delivered, thought John Bardo was the person delivering the script, and so she answered the door. Bardo showed Schaefer a letter and an autograph she had previously sent him, and after a short conversation, Schaefer asked Bardo not to come back to her home again. He then went to a diner nearby and had breakfast. He was while, while eating breakfast, he was actually contemplating whether he should go through with what he was about to do, and he claims he heard a voice that he believed was God telling him to go through with it. 
And believe it or not, during the invest during my research of this whole little case of Rebecca Schaefer and John Bardo, he it was said that he visited Mark David Chapman. I mean, um, Mark David Chapman. <laughs> he visited John Lennon's grave prior to actually going to um, Rebecca Schaefer's apartment. Um, and if you don't, you know, everybody knows who fucking John Lennon is. I mean, if you don't, then I am surprised. But John Lennon was a formal, former Beatle, and he himself was killed by a man who was somewhat obsessed with him, not in the way that you think, but he was killed by Mark David Chapman, who believed a voice was also telling him to kill him, just the same as John Bardo did. An hour later, Bardo returned to Schaefer's apartment for a second time. Schaefer answered the door again with a cold look on her face. Bardo later said to police, Bardo pulled out a gun from a brown paper bag and shot her in the chest at a point-blank range in the doorway of her apartment building. Schaefer screamed and collapsed in her doorway, bleeding as Bardo fled. A neighbor phoned paramedics who arrived to transport her to Cedars Sinai Medical Center. Schaefer was unfortunately pronounced dead 30 minutes after she arrived to the hospital. The day after the murder, Bardo was arrested by Tucson Police Chief Peter Ronstant, brother of Linda Ronstant, after motorists reported a man running through traffic on Interstate 10. I'm not sure why they mentioned she. Oh, okay, so. See, I'm, I was born in the 80s, but I was born in the late 80s, so I don't really know. But apparently, Linda Marie Ranston is a retired American popular music singer known for singing in a wide range of genres, including rock, country, light opera, and Latin. She has earned 10 Grammy Awards, three American Music Awards, two Academy of Country Music Awards, and an Emmy Award. So that's who she is. So, hey, cool. <laughs> After motorists reported a man running through traffic on Interstate 10, I know I read that again, but I had lost my place. He immediately confessed to the murder. Bardo was tried by prosecutor Marcia Clark, who later became known for her role in the O.J. Simpson murder case. Convicted of capital murder in a bench trial, Bardo was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. While following Sadana's assault and Schaefer's murder, Californian law regarding the release of personal information through the DMV were drastically changed. The Driver's Privacy Protection Act was enacted in 1994, which prevents the DMV from releasing private addresses. Schaefer's death also helped prompt the 1990 passage of America's first anti-stalking laws in California. At the time of her death, Schaefer was dating director Brad Siberling. Her death served as an inspiration for Sibylline's film Moonlight Mile, which was released in 2002. A story about the grief of a man whose fiance was murdered that bore little resemblance to the actual relationship between Schaefer and Sibylline. Shortly after Schaefer's death, Pam Dauber and her My Sister Sam co-stars Joel Brooks, David Naughton, and Jenny O'Hara reunited to film a public service announcement for the Center to Prevent Handgun Violence in Schaefer's honor. The website of the charity Tuesday's Child, for which Schaefer worked as a spokesperson, bears a dedication to her. So that's gonna that's the last case for Hollywood murders. So I want to thank you for listening to Strange Talk Podcast. There are many podcasts out there, especially for true crime. There are many true crime podcasts out there, and you chose to listen to true 
<laughs> True Crime Podcast. <laughs> he chose to listen to Strange Talk Podcast where I fuck up everything I always say. But thank you nonetheless for choosing to listen to Strange Talk Podcast because without you, the listener, Strange Talk Podcast would not be what it is today. So I want to give you a big thank you. So if you want to follow me, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast where you can keep up to date with episodes that I'll be working on when I actually get around to them because I know I've been kind of busy, so I haven't really been able to get to them. But for those that you that don't know, this is actually the re-recording of the episode because originally, if you, like I said, if you're not following me on Instagram, you wouldn't have a fucking clue of what I'm talking about. So I probably lost you, and this is probably the part where you click off anyways. But I the when I originally uploaded it to the website that hosts my podcast, which is anchor.fm, um, they, for some reason, the file got corrupted and they weren't able to upload it or didn't upload it. I don't know. So I was kind of having a run around. And so I had to re-record the file. I, ha- I still had most, I had like maybe two of them. I believe it was the killing of the wasp woman. I, that one was fine. And then the Bob Crane, I had to re-record Phil Hartman and then Rebecca Schaefer. So it wasn't really too much of a big deal, but it still sucks because I didn't really have time to do it. I have a daughter. Okay. I know that sounds like an excuse, <laughs> which is sad. Like, oh, you're blaming your fucking daughter, you fucking piece of shit. No, I mean, not really. It's just when I do try to record or when I try to, you know, get around to recording, I can't really record when she's, when, you know, she's awake. I usually record when she's napping and sometimes she doesn't nap. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's the reason why sometimes I'm not really recording or anything. And that's also why. So juggling between a social life, juggling between uh, working and then juggling between taking care and being a father. It's sometimes you don't really have time. <laughs> and that's just the honest truth. So uh, I want to appreciate all of you for sticking with me, even though I haven't really been putting out episodes. But thank you for choosing to listen again to Strange Talk Podcast. So. Give yourself a pat on the back for getting through this episode of Hollywood Murders. Stay tuned for the next episode, which is going to be about some cases of being of people who were wrongly convicted of heinous crimes. Um, I believe you may have heard of one of them, and one of them is known as the Central Park Five. And if you don't know about the Central Park Five, then you're going to want to listen to Monday's episode of the people who have been wrongfully accused, which is also a really funny movie with Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> anyway, I miss Leslie Nielsen. We miss you, Nielsen. But yes, thank you for choosing to listen to this episode. So if you want to follow me, I know I'm repeating myself, but if you want to follow me on Instagram, if you're not already, you can follow me at Strange Talk Podcast. If you want to send me stuff, you know, just send me emails, send me news articles, and maybe I'll start doing This Week in Crime. I know I haven't really done one, but it's because, again, I don't really have time, and I'm really sorry, but I don't know if you guys really enjoy those or not. But anyways, so if you want to send me stuff via email, you can do so at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com, and I'll be more than happy to read what you send me. Also, um, for those that don't know, I had a special guy that would follow me. He's really awesome. He's a pretty cool dude who would always send me shit. And helped me a lot when it came to doing this week in crime episodes. But his name is at Rocky the Collector. And at Rocky the Collector has started his own podcast known as The Collection. So if you want to find more interesting cases, because he does more. Well, I mean, he hasn't done more because he just barely started. But he has a few episodes up. I believe he has three episodes up. And they are really good. 
and I'm actually surprised at how well they are done and he's barely gotten to the game so I'm probably scared that you guys aren't going to listen to Strange Dog Podcast anymore. <laughs> but nonetheless, go and check out Rocky the Collector's Podcast. You can find it on Google. You can you can find it on anywhere because he uses the same um, website that I use, which is anchor.fm. Uh, you know, so you'll find his podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, I already said Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and all that stuff. So all that good stuff. So go and find him and listen to his episodes. And when you do, and you find his profile on Instagram as well, say Strange Talk Podcast sent me. Yeah. So thank you again. I know I'm going to repeat myself a lot, but thank you again. Because without you, Strange Talk Podcast would not be where it is today. So big thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And keep on keeping on. But most importantly, stay strange. <laughs>